Moderating today's conversation is Professor Jennifer Frey, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, Carolina and Fellow of the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America. She was previously Collegiate Assistant Professor of Humanities at the University of Chicago, where she was a member of the Society of Fellows in the Liberal Arts and affiliated faculty in the uh, Philosophy Department, and also uh, most especially exciting for us Assistant Director at the Lumen Christi Institute. Um, in addition to being a, a distinguished scholar, um, Jen is also a public scholar um, with a fantastic podcast, um, Sacred and Profane Love. Uh, I invite you to learn more about that in the link posted within the chat. Professor Russell Hittinger is a senior fellow at the Lumen Christi Institute um, and has been this year visiting professor at the University of Chicago Law School and Professor Emeritus of Catholic Studies and Law at the University of Tulsa. Um, he is also um, a uh, um, associated here with the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. He is also Ordinaris of the Pontifical Academy of the Social Sciences and the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. He's the author of many books, but we are all especially looking forward to his forthcoming Paper Wars. Catholic Social Doctrine in the Modern State. And finally, Father Michael Sherwin is Professor of Fundamental Moral Theology at the University of Freiburg, Switzerland. He has taught, also taught at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, where he received his initial formation as a Dominican and was ordained priest in 1991. Father Sherwin is Director of the St. Thomas Aquinas Institute for Theology and Culture and of the Pincares Archives. Author of articles on the psychology of love, Virtue Ethics and Moral Development, his monograph, By Knowledge and by Love, Charity and Knowledge in the Moral Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, has newly been reissued in paperback. So it's exciting once more to have this full panel of speakers. I invite them now to unmute themselves, to turn on their screen, and I hand it to you, Jen, to take us away and take us into this conversation. Thank you all. Okay, well, thank you, Michael, and thanks to the Lumen Christi Institute for allowing me once again to talk about great books and the Catholic intellectual tradition with my friends. And of course, good morning to everyone who's joined us on this call. Uh, thanks for being here for this conversation about St. Augustine and his concept of a people. So as has been widely remarked upon towards the end of his inaugural address, President Biden made the following reference to St. Augustine's classic text, The City of God. He said, many centuries ago, St. Augustine, a saint of my church, wrote that a people was a multitude defined by the common objects of their love. Biden went on to ask, what are the common objects we love and that define us as Americans? He then proposed the following list of objects, opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, and yes, the truth. So we thought given this unprecedented invocation of St. Augustine in a US inaugural address, we thought it would be helpful to try to place this quotation in its original context, which of course is the city of God, in an effort to help us learn what Augustine can teach us about our contemporary situation. So Father Michael, I wanna put the first question to you. 
what is Augustine's interest in the concept of a people in the city of God? And how does this concept figure in his overall argument? And what's the ultimate significance of the question for him? All very good questions. I want to begin by saying hello to both of you. And uh, Professor Frey, uh, thank you for agreeing to moderate this again. It is. Uh, it, it should not pass uh, unnoticed that this is the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, therefore also the 30th anniversary of Centesimus Anus and the 130th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. So it's the perfect context for us to have this discussion. And perhaps the easiest way to answer, the quickest way to answer your first question is to say that Augustine develops a definition of what of a, a populace, a people, in order to help him convey what it means to be a citizen of the eternal city. But he does this fascinating, fascinatingly for us by drawing upon Cicero's understanding of a republic uh, that he uh, develops in his dialogue, the Res Publica, that many sections of which we only know because Augustine preserves them in the city of God. So I thought it, it might be good just to look at some of the text quickly so that uh, the, those who are following along can uh, have a sense of what it is exactly uh, that we're looking at. And let me see if I can share this with you all. Let's see, do you see the, the quotation from uh, Cicero? Everyone sees that? Okay, so uh, the first thing that uh, Augustine does in book two of the City of God is to draw upon uh, Cicero's conception of the way in which the Republic, the, the public thing, the public concern, it's really what race publica means, how uh, they've inherited a situation that is uh, not what it used to be. Now already Cicero is putting a little bit of distance between himself and the, and the situation in Rome in, during his day by setting his dialogue uh, modeled after the Republic or the Politeia of Plato, setting it back a hundred and so almost 200 years before uh, his period. And he has uh, uh, this to say, but our age receiving the race publica as a masterpiece of another age which has already begun to grow old, has not merely neglected to restore the colors of the original, but has not even made the effort to preserve its general outline and most outstanding features. So that's the, the, the Republic through the analogy of almost like an icon or a mosaic, uh, not only has it, has it lost its colors, but even the outlines of the image are fading. For what survives of that primitive morality, which the poet called Rome's safeguard, it is so obsolete and forgotten that far from practice, practicing it, one does not even know it. And, uh, and of the citizens, what shall I say? Morality has perished through poverty of great men, a poverty for which we must not only assign a reason, but for the guilt of which we must answer as criminals charged with a capital crime. For it is through our vices and not by any mishap that we retain only the name of a race publica and have long since lost the reality. So the, those are uh, 
paragraphs, words that echo down the centuries at, preserved for us uh, uniquely by uh, Augustine. And then as part of his continuing uh, critique of what has happened to the city of Rome, uh, he has uh, uh, this to say about uh, what a republic is. A race publica, race publica is the concern of a people. So the, the race of a people, uh, but a people is not any group of men assembled in any way, but an assembled multitude associated with one another through agreement on right and a community of utility. So he has this uh, personage of the past, Scipio Emilianus, uh, give that definition. Uh, and Augustine draws on that uh, and draws on Cicero's and uh, Sallust's critique of what's happened to the Republic to basically say that according to that definition, Rome never was a Republic because true justice never existed within it. In saying that, Augustine in some ways is drawing upon the, the criticism that the uh, Roman Stoics are already making on the Republic. But his main concern is to use these tools to develop what he wants to do, which is to contrast uh, the earthly city with the heavenly city. So now we jump to book 19 and he says, but if we discard this Cicero's definition of a people and assuming another say that a people is an assembled rational multitude bound together by a common agreement as to the object objects of their love, then in order to discover the character of any people, we have only to observe what they love. And he's going to draw on this to be able to say and distinguish uh, the different types of uh, societies. Now, he's going to, if in the book two, it seemed like he was denying that the Roman Republic was a Republic under this new definition, he's able to recognize that they were uh, a Republic. Uh, what I say of this people uh, and of this race publica, I must be, must be understood to think and say of the Athenians or any other Greeks, uh, of the Egyptians, uh, of the Assyrians, of early Babylon, and every other gens, uh, any other, every other nation, great or small, which ruled by means of uh, a common thing, a public thing, so the Republic. Uh, so wherever you have people gathered, uh, united by their love of something that allows them to have a, a be a people and found a republic. Uh, certainly, this is the great difference. Now he's going to distinguish. Therefore, uh, what you love is going to distinguish uh, each of the peoples and their governments. Certainly, this is the great difference which distinguishes the two cities of which we speak. The one being the society of the pious the other of the impious, each associated with the angels that adore, that adhere to their party, that is the good angels or the demons, and the one is guided by the love of God, the other by the love of self. So the two contrasting cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city, and Augustine's primary concern is to show the way in which the citizens of the earthly city uh, the citizens of, excuse me, the citizens of the eternal city participate in this world 
with the citizens of the earthly city. The peace of the celestial city is the perfectly ordered and harmonious society of enjoying God and one another in God. Societas fruendi Deo et invicem in Deo. The peace of all things is the tranquility of order. So that's the larger piece of, of living in harmony uh, with the nature of things throughout all of creation. This heavenly city then, while it sojourns on earth, calls citizens out of all nations and gathers together a pilgrim society, a marvelous expression, societas peregrina, of all languages. And I think what's important for our discussion is the way in which these two uh, peoples and therefore cities interrelate. Even the heavenly city, therefore, during its pilgrimage, avails itself of earthly peace and so far as it can without injuring faith and piety desires and maintains a common agreement of human wills regarding the acquisition of the necessities of life and makes this earth, earthly peace bear upon the peace of heaven. So this strange way in which the citizens, the pilgrim citizens of heaven participate and promote uh, the transitory uh, temporal peace of the earthly city. While on its pilgrimage, the heavenly city possesses this heavenly peace by faith. And by this faith, it lives justly when it refers to the attainment of that peace, every good action towards God and man for the city, for the life of the city is certainly a social life, which is a great, I think, way to, to stop our little intro. And my long uh, series of quotations is a way of answering your question. Uh, the, uh, I think we can turn that off. So yes, Augustine uses the definition of, the, of what it means to be a people to help convey our relationship with what is permanent, uh, our relationship with heaven and how we are to live now in faith, referring everything towards uh, that heavenly kingdom. Thank you. Russ, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, sure, especially about Cicero, I suppose. Uh, there were a number of reasons that Augustine was so attracted to Cicero and uh, uses him from the very beginning of his adult intellectual life. Cicero is there in spirit. Uh, well, first of all, Cicero was the great rhetorician and linguist. So by the time that Augustine is born 354 in a little Roman municipality in North Africa, I mean, anyone who wants to be educated in the Latin tongue, read Cicero. I mean, he is, he is the text, right? And, but also Cicero was the primary vehicle for translating Greek science, philosophy, wisdom into Latin. So if you wanted to learn philosophy uh, or law, or even some of the sciences, you have to receive the Greeks basically in the Latin tongue through Cicero. Uh, but perhaps the most important reason that he is glued to Cicero all the way through his, his career Cicero is the last Republican, uh, you know, that the Republic had uh, survived for 
more than 700 years. By the way, the Americans, we Americans are destroying ours in less than 300. The, the Romans had a good run of it, almost 700 years of Republican government. Uh, then there were civil wars, uh, moral breakdown, uh, and uh, dictatorship, and then empire, right? So that uh, uh, Cicero, who was murdered in a power struggle of 43 BC, on the wrong side of a power struggle, he's the last of the Mohegans for a literate uh, citizen of the Roman Empire. It's Cicero. And he told the story that all the Roman writers told that really is the beachhead for the city of God. And the story is pretty simple. Uh, after 700 plus years of Republican government, the, the Romans' inordinate love of domination, money, pleasure, did them in. And Cicero reports that. In fact, he becomes the victim of it, right? Uh, just before the imperial, or he, he is the victim of it. And so uh, why is this a beachhead? Well, first of all, two things. Augustine wants us to learn what a republic is. And by the way, there's a very technical meaning for a republic that is a republican form of government, although res publica can mean any political society. But republican form has to do with this, um, something commonly possessed, not just by a family, uh, uh, emphasizing liberty and competition for the common good, Rotation of office holders, if it's a common, if it's our thing, commonly, then we should rotate offices. It's based chiefly on honor and moral probity, and it never deifies its leaders. Unlike the Egyptians and the Assyrians and others, republics do not deify their leaders. Uh, Constant reform is necessary of a republic. They're really hard to keep together because there's competition and factionalism. And uh, you, it, it is not a dictatorship. So people really do have to agree on things. And uh, they have to moderate their lust for power within that. And so, uh, so here we have a situation of a, a marvelous 700 year republic that goes down the tubes. It kind of miraculously reappears as an empire with another 600 years on it. Uh, but uh, Augustine wants to teach us two things. One, what is a republic? What is a political community? He wants to give us a definition of that. But number two, he wants to teach us also how to lose one. I mean, this, this is not a rule book for the technicality of losing a republic. Rather, it's a rule book for how to inherit a kingdom. That is, we have to learn how to deal with our grief when Roman order disperses, falls in on itself. And that's what the saints, as pilgrims here on earth, always have to learn. You have to learn how to deal with grief and that these cities and these polities don't last forever. 
And uh, the second part of the city of God is, is a kind of lesson in how to inherit the kingdom according to the, the wisdom of Christ. So there we go. Well, yeah, so it's really interesting to me that you're, <clears throat> I mean, it's really interesting to me that Cicero is arguing that sort of, um, or that a gut, a, uh, the argument is that it's bad character, right? Which can undo a republic. Um, it sort of reminds me of um, the kind of uh, strand of what we call civic republicanism uh, and the founding fathers, right? So people, people like Washington and Adams who are arguing like, look, if we don't have a moral people, if we don't have people with good character, um, this is all gonna fall apart. Um, and for that reason, they wanted there to be um, a strong religious <laughs> aspect, not an establishment, of course, but for there to be um, you know, a, a robust religious presence because they thought, okay, well, the job of the government can't be to make men good, right? We have to, you know, the churches have to do that. They sort of thought that it was foundational. And at any rate, it brings me to my next question, which is if, if we look at book 19, the broader context is he's talking about virtue and happiness, right? And so the question is, um, and, and I think this remark is a, is a clue, right? Um, how does his politics relate and his notion of a people relate to his ideas about virtue and happiness? And that's a question for you, Father Michael. Oh, well, first of all, I want to say I, I thought um, Russ's presentation was a tour de force. I, I, I think it's, um, it's absolutely amazing to see how the heritage of pagan Rome is transmitted to us by Augustine. You know, the, there are passages that we only know from him, and he is, in a sense, uh, leading us to mourn the demise of the Republic. Uh, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And the, uh, the marvelous passage where Scipio uh, talks about the different ways in which uh, governments, whether it's a, ruled by a, a king, ruled by the optimes, so by the, uh, a small group of nobles, or whether the whole populace, all, all forms can become uh, tyrannical in one way or another. Uh, you can have a, a government led by faction or the people can become the tyrant. Uh, so the question of virtue immediately emerges. But for Augustine, I think immediately, especially if you take seriously that the, the turning point of, of the city of God is, is book 10 and the, the religious character of virtue uh, and the 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 ways in which there's really only two options, a, a well-ordered love that therefore has God as your prince, as your king, or a disordered love and you become uh, united to uh, the, the spiritual powers that have rejected God. There's no in-between, there's no neutral stance. You're either uh, in the harbor of God's protection and the protection of his angels, or you become the plaything of the rebel angels. And uh, that's a theme that is um, repeated throughout Western literature, Western history. It's already in Boethius and you see it, the, the, the best in English language is, is Macbeth. The whole play uh, turns on 
the fact that Macbeth thinks that he's got powers that are helping him uh, attain his disordered goals. And in fact, they help him help lead him and everything he loves to destruction. So you either have a well-ordered love uh, in, that is disposing you to love God and all things rightly, or your, your disorder becomes worse and worse. And so virtue, um, what more to say? The, for him, it's all part, he redefines the heritage, the, the, the Greek and Roman heritage of the cardinal virtues, which of course get their name from his mentor, uh, Ambrose. Uh, the, he redefines them in terms of forms of, of charity, this rightly ordered love that disposes you to judge correctly about what you should do here and now, which is phronesis animated by love, so prudence animated by love, to render each one God and neighbor what is due to them. You are disposed to do that because of your well-ordered love, uh, your courage to die uh, for the gospel uh, as a martyr, uh, that is also because of your well-ordered love, that you're even willing to die your, uh, your earthly life for uh, the justice towards your neighbor or the spiritual good of your neighbor. Uh, all of this becomes possible because you love things rightly, uh, passing things as passing things, uh, beautiful and good, sacramental. They reveal something of the eternal, but they're not eternal. But So you love them rightly, temperate, uh, as temporal goods, uh, and then also uh, if, if in times of danger what is most likely to lead you away from the good is fear of death, you need that courage, but in government, in governing, whether you have, whatever post you have, whether it's the father of a family or uh, a local town mayor or whatever different job, a teacher, what is most likely, if you're not functioning as a soldier. It's not fear that's most likely to get you acting uh, foolishly. It's disordered pleasure. And so this uh, sophrosune, which I, the one thing I criticize poor old Cicero for is choosing temperancia uh, to translate sophrosune. He, he discusses whether he should do that. It only focuses on one aspect of, of sophrosune, which really means to be in your right mind because you love pleasure uh, the bodily pleasures of food, drink, and sex correctly, rightly. All of these things are possible for Augustine because your love is rightly ordered. You love things as you should. Uh, and uh, that once again shows how, what it means to be a people is if you love as you should, you're loving with these dispositions that God gives you in grace uh, to love them in kind of put everything in the current with which you flow towards God. Did you want to add anything to that, Russ? Yeah, the, the, um, in the early 21st century, we tend to think of justice or what is the virtue of justice to stay on Father Sherwin's theme chiefly in terms of something impersonal. Justice is a facet or a property of institutions. We will talk about a just uh, welfare program. Okay. Whereas the word just 
is, is something that modifies a person. First and foremost, it modifies a person. And if it modifies a person, it modifies what kind of soul they have, their heart, as, as Augustine would put it. And, and so we think of it rather impersonally in terms of institutions, devices, instruments, programs, policies. You see, you see where I'm going with this. But that's not Augustine, because in the classical world, of course, they knew about the art of politics. They knew about foundings. They knew about creating republics. They knew about sewer systems for a city of a million people. Rome at the time was uh, uh, first century as a million people. And they had everything that uh, art at that point could supply for the benefit of such a huge multitude. But they knew that without the citizens, which means their hearts, that's why he keeps on their hearts, they're like living stones, right? They animate the city. And without the citizens, the city are, are just empty walls, right? So Augustine's, Augustine follows, I think, a very classical model, and one, of course, that's deeply informed by uh, the notion of the people of God, the Christian understanding of uh, unity of hearts. So justice is in the first place where people's hearts are and what they're agreeing on, the objects of their love and their patterns of doing that. That's the vita socialis, this social life. Uh, and politics is a social life for Augustine. So if you think you can maintain a city just by building more aqueducts or being, learning how to fix the aqueducts without looking at the hearts of the people in their pattern of loves, you're not in the real world. And here we have the concrete instance, 410 AD, Alaric sacks the city of Rome. Was, was the populace destroyed? I mean, when the buildings were burnt, right? And all the disorder was created. What Augustine has to say no, because political order is not the walls. It's the concordia with hearts, concordia. And so, yeah, that's the Augustinian approach. And it, it obviously has to have an, a notion of virtue to come back to Father Sherwin's answer, of course, yes. Well, I, d I just you know, one thing, Jen, getting back to your the second part of your question. Yeah, the a book that I had an impact. It's a small book, but it had an impact was uh, by. Um, uh, oh, is it Miller? Uh, oh, he's the one who wrote uh, um, Lincoln's Virtues, uh, but he wrote a book earlier book called uh, The Business of May Next, where he looks at how the those who are going to be participating in the in the uh, constitutional uh, convention, we're trying to figure out how to promote uh, a, a virtuous republic without creating some new form of tyranny. And especially Madison's letters to Jefferson, who was our representative in France. And so they were back and forth. Jefferson wasn't able to be a part of the convention. And it's, uh, it is very, very interesting to see this was a big concern to them. And you see this in uh, when Tocqueville famously comes to America 
uh, in the 1830s, his concern that all of these wonderful intermediate organizations that were forming people in virtue were not actually mandated by the Constitution, but that constitutional government depended upon what famously he's going to describe as uh, the habits of the heart. Uh, that if you don't love uh, justice, rendering to each one uh, his or her due, if you don't uh, love uh, representative government and uh, trying to use parliamentary procedures to promote the common good, you're, you're not going to defend them. And so that was, they were, they were good students of the classical tragedy mm -hmm. and they were concerned about it. And their, their letters are fascinating. Yeah, so just, just, just a really quick follow-up. Um, so the extent to which St. Augustine is a student of Cicero and, and other pagans. Um, you know, someone who reads The City of God, it would be uh, very easy to come away with the view that Augustine actually holds a kind of a low opinion of the pagans, like he's very harsh on them. Um, even in, you know, some of, some of the chapters that were, or the books that we're talking about this morning. Um, and, and you yourself, Father Michael, said that for Augustine, all the virtues become forms or aspects of, of caritas, which, you know, the pagans themselves wouldn't have possessed. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just kind of wondering to what extent we, to what extent does he embrace, um, you know, the pagan sources about justice? Um, given, you know, that he, he doesn't seem to want to extend virtue to them. Well, I, I hear, a, that's a very big question. And I hear a, another question behind it, which is the, the, the classic 19th century early, I, I'd say up until mid 20th century debate between what you could describe as Thomist school of reading pagan virtue and Augustinian school. And I'm, I'm among those, I'm accused of being an Augustinian Thomist. Uh, and I am one of those who thinks that uh, the way to understand Aquinas is to see him as an Augustinian who uses Aristotelian tools. And the way to understand uh, Augustine is to see someone who, as he got more and more involved in pastoral ministry, drew more heavily on uh, Aristotelian language. But nonetheless, uh, I think we have a difficult, if we're going to let Augustine and Aquinas speak to us, we have to put them into their context. It's not because of his Christian commitments that Augustine cannot grant pagan virtue as real virtue. It's because of the pagans' commitments to their notion of virtue. Let me explain what I mean. Augustine holds that we aren't happy in this life. We have a foretaste of happiness, but our happiness is in heaven. Now, if you read Seneca in his letters, he thinks he can be perfectly happy because that's what virtue gives. And so, Aquinas, because he's not really having any conversation with any pagans, he can develop a Christian understanding of 
true but imperfect ha uh, true but imperfect happiness and true but imperfect virtue. He can develop that notion. But if you were to tell Seneca, you, um, your virtues, your excellences don't make you happy. They don't attain what you tell you hold them to attain. But I'm great, willing to grant you that they are true virtues. That's cold comfort for a pagan. So it wouldn't, it, there's no space uh, conceptually for Augustine to hold that there are true but imperfect pagan virtue when he's talking to the pagans because he's denying the heart of the pagan claim, which there is that their virtue, by their virtue, they can attain perfection and happiness. And as he beautifully says about, about the uh, Stoics, they're not happy, they're bravely unhappy. So at the end of the day, when you read Aquinas's understanding of pagan happiness, the expert of whom in the said contra is Job, Aquinas's notion of imperfect happiness and imperfect virtue is not all that far from Augustine's notion. It's just that the terminology necessarily has to be different. Okay, a lot I would like to say in response to that, but I, I want to thank you, um, it's helpful. Um, Okay, so I want to talk about common loves. We've got right? Russell wanting to oh, say no, something. Oh, oh, Russ, go ahead. On virtue, he doesn't deny the virtues of the pagans. Now, I mean, the two most important pagan characters that we can learn from in some constructive way uh, in the first 10 books are Regulus, Marcus Regulus, who he, as much as, if he were Dante, Regulus really would be in purgatory on his way to heaven, I think. Cato, probably not. But Regulus was a uh, Roman general who during the first Punic War, you know, about midway through the third century BC, uh, was captured by the Car Carthaginians and he was released on parole that he would go back to Rome and make a deal with Rome to uh, uh, release prisoners and you know, so on and so forth. And Regulus swore by the gods that he would return no matter what the answer was. He goes to Rome. Uh, Rome says, no, we're not going to make any deal whatsoever. And in honor, not of Rome or of the Carthaginians, but of the gods, he went back to Carthage and met instant death, a rather grisly death. And, and Augustine says of Regulus, we don't know exactly what was in his heart, but we know what his deed was, is that the gods were to be honored, not for material advantages. He honored the gods because of their excellence and even sacrificing his own life in that honor. So he had a kind of pre-Christian soul, perhaps, right? And Cato is recognized throughout right, um, who committed suicide after it was clear that the dictatorship of Caesar would prevail. But uh, listen, the reason he focuses on Cato was because the guy really was virtuous. And therefore, it's a nice contrast to Job. Mm -hmm. So is Job better than Cato or not? And at the end of book one, he says, Cato was great, but Job was better. Mm. Yeah. So he does recognize uh, And remembering that Job is a pagan, right? I mean, right? 
Job's, Job's a pagan, just so we remember. Yeah, but he's taught by God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's taught by God. Okay, so I, um, I want to talk about common loves, if we can, right? Um, so I take it that common loves is a gesture towards friendship, political friendship. And so I just want to ask what St. Augustine thinks about friendship, politically speaking. Um, and then I want to ask the more specific question of whether he thinks there can be political friendship between Christians and non-Christians, because it seems to me that that would bear on his concept of a people. Well, let's let Russ answer the, the last part of your question, because I think he has a brilliant answer. Well, okay. and so, uh, uh, Father Michael, are you going to answer the first part? Yeah, we'll get back to that. But I think the second part's, uh, right. I mean, I've, I, I, here I'm in Freeburg, where uh, Mary Aquinas McNamara wrote her dissertation on friends and friendship in Augustine. Uh, so, you know, I've got, I could go on forever about that. But I think the, the important uh, feature is, uh, because it's important, I, I think it's becoming more and more a, a pressing question for for uh, we, uh, pil uh, this pilgrim society uh, in America, as our, our institutions begin to um, look very dist distressingly out of whack, uh, how, how are we to live uh, amongst our non-Christian or non-Catholic neighbors? So is, for Augustine, what can Augustine say to us? Is, uh, is uh, political friendship with them possible, uh, Russ? According to your read of book uh, 19? Or... Yeah, well, maybe first, though, Russ, say something about what he thinks political friendship is, so that, that way we can understand right. the answer. Yeah. Well, political friendship is one, one mode of social friendship. So friendship in the household, right, in matrimony and in the household, the domestic order is uh, a distinct set of friendships. By the way, domestic order has more than one kind of friendship going on within it, right? Because uh, the, the spouses have a different friendship than the children with the spouses, okay? And the spouses don't have the same friendship that the children have with one another. So there's actually three modalities of friendship going on inside the household. And if you add in slaves, which they did, were kind of friends. That, that, that there, there could have even been four in, for, for Augustine in the, in the household. Uh, and then there's the friendship among the saints, which is based on faith and hope in things unseen, reality of things unseen, and, uh, and a heart that's being trained uh, how to love God and neighbor properly. And that's under grace. But the intermediate mode between the household and the church is polity. We call it res publica. And it's, it involves two things. First, uh, we can use the word consensus. Now the word consensus in Latin, which we use in English exactly, is, is, is more intellectual. It's like to give consent or to form a consensus to uh, create a federal republic. That's what our founders did. They reached a consensus about what kind of polity to have, a federal republic. 
So in this, this emphasizes their mind being on the same page. So then in a political order where we're not tied immediately by familial loves and cons consensus, so to speak, uh, it's important for a multitude to learn how to reach consensus about important common things. And it's up here, okay. But Augustine adds another element to that, which is concordia. And with a union of hearts, which means they, they not only agree to have a polity shaped in this way, structured in this way rather than that way, but they also have love of that very polity. And they love one another. They have something in common. Uh, Augustine would say, especially Republican, glory, glory, that when Rome becomes so successful, right? And there's so many virtuous characters early on in their experience, all Romans can bathe in that love of, the, of that achievement. Their laws were excellent. Romans really knew how to make laws. Uh, and then unfortunately they start loving a lot more than that. And they start loving their, their excesses. But there is still a common love in the excesses. I, you know, every night having flamingo tongues barbecued for dinner, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, gladiatorial games. But that's his entrance into it. It's, it's not the household, right? And it's not the church, right? It's something intermediate. It, it's perhaps not as intense as household or as intense as liturgy, but it's real. And listen, it, it, even, even in our culture today, where everyone's suspicious of political order and suspicious of any, that there's any truth telling going on by any of the elites or the politicians, everyone in their heart grieves when we see it going down. We grieve, it's real. Now you may not have a proper estimation of it. You may be overcome by your grief, but it's real. And it, it, it's testimony to, to the fact that love was present, a certain kind of political love. Um, yeah, it, listen, 1952 here in the New York area was great. You had the Yankees, you had Wall Street, you had won the Second World War. There's a love of that. Are you going to start crying about the move of the Giants out to San Francisco? Then, then I'll have to get off the off the train. And grieving uh, for the Dodgers too. <laughs> well, we can. Yes. Anyway, um, the uh, uh, there's that other aspect of the question, though. Can the uh, can the citizens of the Eternal City have uh, social friendship with the citizens of the, the, the earthly city? Uh, the answer is in book 19, chapter 17. He deals with it directly. Um, title, what produces peace and what discord between the heavenly city and the earthly? Um, so, for the earthly city, it strives, not through faith in God, but it strives by a sort of natural impetus 
to find peace in the goods and advantages that are to be had in our life here, right? Uh, ordered ordered uh, security, not any kind of security, but ordered security, right? Uh, we have a legal system. We have, we have rights and obligations uh, and we have administration. He uses the word administration. Uh, and uh, we have agriculture. We can defend ourselves in the city against aggressors. We have agriculture, we have uh, economic prosperity. These sorts of things are to be had by both the saints and the citizens of the Terrine city. Uh, we have children. I mean, we could just make a long list of the things that we have in common. Uh, now, we love them differently because the saints love the temporal goods for the sake of uh, the divine, the divine city. Uh, we love our neighbor, not just as ourselves, but as a, a fellow creature because of our theology. There's all kinds of ways we love them differently, but the things we love, materially speaking, it's a no-brainer. Uh, everyone wants these kinds of things to some extent, but there's one thing that causes the discord, and it's the one thing he mentions here, and I'll, I'll read a couple of sentences. Yeah. We're still on chapter 17. Chapter 17. Um, but... The heavenly city knows only one God who is to be worshipped, and it decrees with faithful piety that to him alone is to be given that service, which the Greeks called latria, and which is due only to God. And because of this difference, it has not been possible for the heavenly city to have laws of religion in common with the earthly city. It has been necessary for her to dissent from the earthly city in this regard and to become a burden to those who think differently. Thus, she had to bear the brunt of the anger and hatred and persecutions of her adversaries, except insofar as their minds have sometimes been struck by the multitude of the Christians and by divine aid always extended to them. Uh, so he says, so long therefore as the heavenly city is a pilgrim does not have the laws of religion in common with the pagans, let's say. Uh, uh, she summons the citizens of all nations in every tongue and brings together a society of pilgrims in which there is no attention paid to the differences in customs, laws, institutions by which the earthly peace is achieved and maintained. She does not rescind or destroy these things. However, whatever differences there are among the various nations, these all tend toward the same end of earthly peace. Mm. Uh, that, that's his direct answer yeah. to it. Yeah, it's, really it's beautiful. Yeah, and the, of course, it takes place at the retail level, on the on the neighborhood level, city level. You see it function uh, much more uh, acutely where he talks about, you know, the desire, it desires and maintains a common agreement of human wills regarding the acquisition, the attainment of the necessities of life. And you can... That's the that's the the Catholic experience in uh, in non-Catholic republics uh, for centuries now. Uh, but the what happens when 
your neighbors uh, start to pursue a disordered love to such an extent that what constitutes the basic necessities of life are no longer agreed upon. That poses serious questions for all of us. Okay, so I we're getting close to the one hour mark. So I'm um, sorry, I'm trying to choose what I <laughs> want my final question to be. I mean, I guess um, let's talk about freedom. So we've talked about virtue, we've talked about happiness, we've talked about common loves. Um, I guess one question I have is, um, you know, given how different our conception of freedom is from the conception that that St. Augustine had, um, you know, we tend to think of freedom now as a personal autonomy. So you're free when um, you're free from all forms of oppression that inhibit you from finding your true self, which is unique to you, and living authentically um, in a way that expresses that self to the world in a way that's true and authentic. Um, Augustine has a rather different <laughs> notion of freedom. And, and I'm wondering how this bears on the question about common loves and a people. This one's for you, Father Michael. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm acutely aware that our sponsors are in Chicago and I think, and, and of this anniversary, I don't think we could do any better than to call to mind uh, Milton Friedman's reaction to Centesimus Anus, which he liked in many ways, but there was the paragraph where John Paul II, as a, uh, a, a veteran from the, uh, the first, the dictatorial uh, oppression of the Nazis and then under the uh, Soviet model of uh, Marxism uh, after the war, having been a dissident in both of those worlds, he has a paragraph in Centesimus Annus where he talks about in a very Joanine way that freedom depends upon fidelity to truth. And uh, Friedman echoing Isaiah Berlin says, this is a very disturbing notion and Berlin, uh, his lesson from having survived the Second World War was to say that the best way to promote uh, liberty was to have a notion of, uh, of freedom that's freedom from and uh, freedom from constraints. And the way you promote that is by recognizing the transitory and uh, approximated aspect of any of your truth claims. And I think uh, Rabbi, um, uh, why am I blanking out on his name? Um, the former chief rabbi of London, uh, Sachs. Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs responds to Isaiah Berlin very beautifully by saying that well, you need to have at least some minimum agreement on right and wrong or uh, anything becomes possible. And I think that's the great challenge for us today if we're uh, to live, to preserve our republics is does the type of freedom we cherish nonetheless require some communal commitment to some fundamental basic truths about what it means to be human and that those are the building blocks for what you would want to describe as a freedom for that makes a freedom for excellence possible. 
but also that makes a, the, the fundamental excellence that recognizes the importance of granting certain types of freedoms that uh, in an ideal society we might not want to. So the very foundation of the kind of liberal society that allows all these different groups to have all their different ideas, doesn't that require at least some foundational truths or it becomes like the serpent eating its tail? Uh, so yeah, I think this is uh, this question uh, about the minimal requirements of fidelity to truth in order for freedom to be possible is not going to go away. And I think it's really dividing the nation. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Do you want to add anything, Russ, before we move to audience Q and A? Well, you know, one of the interesting things is if it's if it was a characteristic of liberalism at its apogee and peak of its success to emphasize the liberty of the individual. Uh, you know, today what we have is that it's, it's just identities. I mean, it's genders and races and victims. So that how you can have a tranquility of a social tranquility of order where we uh, uh, we're fundamentally divided, allegedly, by things that make us almost different kinds of creatures. I mean, I mean, how do you deal with this? How do you do justice when uh, there will just be a continual succession of victims and therefore the polity is always unjust? It's just always unjust. It can never catch up with all the justices that have to be accomplished on this identitarian model. Uh, yeah, you, you, I mean, even, even the pagans did better. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying about justice no longer being a thing between you and me, right? But being a thing about institutions. And, you know, I mean, most theorists think that, and, and you know, it's being taught to kids now, um, you know, think that what it means to be a woman or what it means to um, be any one of these ethnic identities is to just be a node in a broader system of oppression. That's all that it is, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, and so it's all about, um, it's, it's all about the systems. Right? It's, it's nothing interpersonal anymore. It's not about virtue. And um, the scary thing about it is it removes all the intermediate communities between the state and the individual. Yeah, yep. So that there are no community. Community of life ceases to be possible except on the most um, almost like pencil point uh, collection of uh, autonomous little pencil points, it, 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 but uh, under the umbrella of an extraordinarily powerful uh, state. Uh, yeah. I apologize, there's some noise. <laughs> um, I'm in a hotel in Charleston. Uh, anyway, so we're gonna move now to audience Q&A and we're gonna do something slightly different in that um, even though it's a webinar, we're gonna ask um, some audience members to ask their questions directly. And so I take it that the first 
question, uh, the first person we're going to invite is Zach Taylor. So Zach, if you could just unmute yourself and ask your question. And if just please say who specifically your question is addressed to. Hi, so I think, um, I don't know if my question is directed at anyone specifically, whether it's um, Professor Hittinger or Professor Sherwin, but um, my question is about the specific loves that President Biden referenced in his inauguration. A lot of the response to him quoting Augustine and citing these loves has been to point to the distinction between the earthly city and the heavenly city. And to say that, well, it's kind of ironic that he's quoting Augustine because Augustine would just simply say, well, these are loves of the earthly city that loves itself and they're not especially salutary. And it's a kind of critique of Biden's invocation of this quote. And I was just kind of wondering, though, if we could think a little bit uh, differently about uh, loves and whether, you know, Augustine would acknowledge more salutary and less salutary loves. And I have in mind, you know, kind of the previous discussion where we were discussing, um, or you all were discussing rather, the uh, kind of quasi-virtues of the pagans that Augustine acknowledges and says, well, these kept in check the worst devices until the end of the Republic. So my question is whether Augustine could evaluate those, those loves that Biden listed and say, well, you know, these may be more or less salutary, more or less desirable than other loves that one could list and kind of without acknowledging that, well, or simply dismissing them as being the loves of the earthly city. Jen, do you want to remind us of that, of that list? You, you had the text at the beginning of your comments. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I have it here. Um, opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, and truth. Yeah, I mean, I think Augustine would depend, it all depends on how you define each of those terms, but I think Augustine would see those as part of the, uh, the goods that he would want the citizens of the heavenly city to try to maintain a common agreement of wills regarding those goods in a way that's ordered towards allowing the citizens of heaven to live their virtues and to, and to live them in a rightly ordered way. So I don't think there's any necessary rupture between the two, uh, but of course it, it depends on how each person, whether each person is truly pursuing them or not. Russ, did you want to add something to that? Or? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be inclined to quarrel over the list. Uh, but when you're speaking in that kind of forum, your language is usually going to drift to things being pretty abstract, <laughs> right? Uh, for Augustine, when, when he tried to think of what did the best of those Roman Republicans agree to in their, in their loves, common loves, when they really had the salt of republicanism. And uh, there's three words, glory, being their virtues and triumphs being recognized by others. Uh, two, honor, that uh, those who competed for honors for the sake of the common good be recognized. And third, yep, power. 
power for, uh, for the ancient Romans is a fundamental good. It's not merely instrumental. Uh, and so the, the ancient Romans, were, I think, think they were more concrete about this but, uh, than Biden's list. But that's no crit criticism of President Biden. But, you know, Augustine tells this wonderful story about how the, the Romans had a kind of admirable habit when they conquered another people, another city, right, over those centuries. Uh, eventually, they would incorporate the vanquished into their own order. I mean, they would become by steps Roman citizens. But Augustine adds, but not without being vanquished because the fundamental good of Rome is the actual act of subduing and vanquishing. Take away that and everything else falls in their scheme of values, right? So. Uh, uh, Biden says prosperity. I think that's that's very good. Uh, he didn't say riches, but a kind of prosperity, a success in in that aspect of life. It seems to me fair game. Okay, so I have a question from. Thomas, um, which I think is really good because it's an invitation to expand upon something we were talking about earlier. And that is just, so I, I set up this contrast between what Augustine thinks about freedom and the kind of modern autonomy conception. So Thomas asks, well, look, how, how did St. Augustine understand freedom so that I can better understand the contrast? Yes, uh, I mean, he, go, he addresses this explicitly uh, there's, and Father Pinkers to again give another Freeberg nod, uh, quotes this. Uh, there are two forms of freedom for Augustine. The first one is freedom from sin, to be liberated from sin and slavery to sin. It, Augustine in his own experience, and he articulates this then in his own theology, that's one of the foundational liberating experiences sanctifying grace. God's love, uh, uh, the effect of God's love on human nature is to free us from our attachment to sin. So that's the first foundational notion of uh, libertas for Augustine is to be freed from this kind of slavery, both to sin and to the demons. Collectively, it's the slavery from, to the demons that we are liberated from in, with the advent of Christ. Uh, and then the, the, what uh, Father Pinkers will describe as a liberté de qualité, which gets translated as freedom for excellence. Augustine has that notion that there, there's this new excellence, this new glory, which is not human glory, but it's the glory of God and the freedom to make acts that participate uh, in, and this is, you know, this is Second Peter chapter one, actions that participate in the glory of God and the joy that comes from living that. So the freedom to participate in uh, this uh, action of saving action of God. And one thing we haven't talked about uh, is the way in which, and this is, this is the conclusion of of uh, Joseph Ratzinger's dissertation uh, on the 
the the church as the people of God and the house of God is the way in which he comes to the conclusion that in Augustine's work, one of the key notions of the church is the body of Christ from first Corinthians. And so that this way of living freedom uh, is to be incorporated into the, the sacramental mystery uh, of the Eucharist and the cross. And that's the greatest freedom, the freedom to participate in God's saving action through lives, lives of well-ordered love that, that are uh, what uh, Joseph Ratzinger will say in Deus Caritas Est, at least in the English translation, is a kind of sacramental mysticism. Uh, the culmination of which is martyrdom. That's the ultimate freedom, to be configured to the cross of Christ unto death. Okay, perfect, thank you. Um, I have a question from David. Where do biblical truths come into the story? Not philosophy or philosopher, but the Bible as accepted by the church. Russ. Uh, the, the very structure of the book is, is the answer. Uh, the first 10 chapters, books of the city of God are telling the story of the ungluing of Rome and of the tearing. It's just one more aspect of the tearing uh, uh, city. And uh, the, the evidence for it is taken primarily from the ancient writers themselves. Uh, and so Augustine allows the ancient writers to convict themselves through their own words and treatises Christians are not to blame for the fall of Rome, okay. But uh, books 11 through 22, God speaks. And now we hear a different side of the story and it begins with scripture and it begins with the first two sentences of Genesis one, all the way through, all through the voices of the prophets, so on and so forth. So we're telling a story of two cities First, from the standpoint of the opinion of the ancients. And secondly, from God himself speaking. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, that voice is really important. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the, how the city of God begins, he, the, the whole portrayal is the way in which, in God's providence, the the history of Rome prepares the nations to re in the, in the darkness and chaos that have come upon the empire uh, to, to receive the light of the gospel and to discover an abiding city, the truly glorious city mm -hmm. and how uh, salvation history from the, from the creation of the world is pointing towards uh, the culmination of, of the life of this city and uh, creating citizens of this, uh, this city. Uh, no, I think it's, uh, that's, the, that's the great masterpiece. He gives a theology of history whereby pagan history is drawn into in God's providence, uh, revelation history. Okay, good. Um, 
So the next question, I think we're going to let uh, Veronica Ogle. Yes, there she is. Okay, great. Uh, go ahead and ask your question, please. Oh, great. Um, so I guess my question is about, uh, perhaps it's a bit, it's a bit on the nose. And then I, I wonder what you think Augustine would say about Biden's invocation of his idea. I mean, I think on the face of it, it's, it's a bit out of context, right? Um, he, he's criticizing the Romans. He's pointing out that their loves aren't, you know, love of God, right? Um, but on the other side of it, you could say, well, Augustine sees that the point of an inaugural address is exhortation, right? So maybe he would find it fitting um, to, to take uh, the point and recast it. So I just wonder what your thoughts were about that. I think I'll make a commercial for Professor Ogle's new book on politics in the city of God. Uh, so I'm delighted to have a question from Professor Ogle, uh, Veronica Roberts Ogle. Uh, well, I don't know. I think Augustine, the first thing is he would find it terribly tempting. He, would, he, he describes himself as easily distracted. So I could just see Augustine uh, at the inauguration of a president in this wild country that is the United States, and he would have been tremendously distracted and tempted to go off in every other direction. Uh, but I don't think he would necessarily, this is the interesting thing about it, especially when you read how he engages Varro, for example, or the, and Cicero, all the different classical authors, he gives them so much airtime that even though he's going to be a sharp critic of them, he clearly thinks that they're that they have truths that and he has truths. They have truths that he wants to celebrate. So uh, and he was also very much aware of the importance of trying to make something work, because even bad government was better than no government, I think Augustine would recognize. And if you look at in the letters and the way in which he's uh, talking to the, uh, uh, the the leadership, the Roman leadership, as things are uh, are collapsing in North Africa, uh, I think he would have a certain amount of sympathy for any uh, national leader who's trying to uh, get citizens behind the common pursuit of good things. I mean, I don't think. Uh, He's not a uh, identity politics person. He's not someone who wants to go off and attack people uh, for whatever reason. And I mean, when you look at the ways in which he gets into rhetorical attacks, uh, it's when great things are at stake, but he's also willing to have correspondence with people he doesn't agree with. He's willing to try to make things work with the Donatist when he can, but when it becomes unworkable, he uh, uh, he, he appeals to authority. Um, so I don't know. I think he would, uh, I think he would give uh, the, the leader of a, of, a, of a great republic a lot of slack, but calling him to live the words he's putting forward. Russ, did you want to add something? Yeah, you know, toward, by the way, when, when Augustine really tears out after somebody, it's usually after Christian heretics, not not Roman authorities. So, I mean, uh, I mean, he treats the ancient Roman authorities with kids kids gloves compared to Pelagius, right? So, uh, 
But at, at the end of book 19, he has a little disquisition on our justice. He calls it our justice as uh, Christians. But Christians here in this world, and he says, what is our justice? Uh, it consists only in the remission of sin rather than in the perfection of virtue. And this is borne out by the prayer of the whole city of God during his pilgrimage on earth. It cries out to God with the voice of all of its members, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And uh, back in book five, when he's talking about the Christian emperors like Constantine and Justinian and whatnot, it's really interesting because Theodosius, he says, what makes them different than the civic leaders we're, we've been used to is that they were capable of repenting of their sins. And, you know, th that ties it back to your notion of Lincoln, because Lincoln was very much aware of that kind of address to a populace, right? Sackcloth and ashes is a, is, is a very useful moment. Okay, great. So I think we have another uh, question, uh, another live question from the audience. I'll see if um, it shows up here. <laughs> if not, I'll just... Okay, they're not... Uh, yes, okay, there we go. Um, I'm sorry, I, I have a history of butchering Polish names. So <laughs> you could just go, I'm not even going to try. Just go ahead and ask your question, please. Janusz. Is this me, Janusz Duzinkiewicz? Yes, um, Polish names can be pronounced if people simply put the effort into it. Uh, my question is that I was surprised how uh, um, that, that reference to, to pagans, uh, hadn't Christianity already become um, the state religion by, by 380? Um, so how many pagans were there at, at, um, around at Augustine's time? And then what was his attitude towards Christianity as the state religion that would define what a person should love? I'll take a crack. Uh, yes, so Augustine is born less than a generation after Constantine Milvian Bridge. Uh, and the very year of his ordination, uh, 391, was the first set of more draconian laws uh, making certain kinds of religion illegal. Okay, so I mean, he lived in that world, he knew what it was. And it's very interesting that in book five of the City of God, when he talks about Christian rulers, uh, he has almost nothing to say about Constantine. And what he says about the others is more along this paternoster thing. Well, at least they, beat, they, they have humility and they, they, uh, they're capable of repentance. But you know what I think he really thought at that time is that paganism was everywhere. And the reason why is that in book one of the city of God, he says, the big problem with the sack of Rome is that all these people who called themselves Christians in order to get into the imperial bureaucracy, right? They, were, they moved from their household and civic gods to Christianity so they could get a job in the uh, curses honorum of, of, of the Christian imperial regime. He says, 
they're either not Christians or they're so weak that, uh, you know, they, they need some major help. And the evidence for it is by the hundreds. They're fleeing Rome, if not by the thousands, they're fleeing Rome to get to North Africa, bringing with them the complaint that we thought Jesus Christ was going to make the crops grow. We thought that Jesus Christ was going to do all of the work of our, our old temples. And uh, Augustine, Augustine could pick that out right away, that they don't know what Christianity is, or, or they're very weak in it because they want uh, the reign of Christ to function like a uh, civic God. And I think it's probably right. You know, the, uh, uh, it, it's really a mixed bag. And you, you might remember at the end of book one, he says something like this. He says, in time, these two cities are mixed together, corpus paramixtum. He says, and we don't know who is a citizen? Because there are people who cavort in all of the old pagan style of, of ways, but might end up being, a, by grace, a, a citizen in the kingdom. And there are also those who come to our liturgies who will defect. So I think he's, he's intensely conscious of the fact that Christianity, first, it, it hasn't really triumphed politically, not everywhere. Uh, uh, and the, the great mission work in the rest of Europe is completely untouched by Constantine and Theodosius and those kind of people. He, he, and he's aware that in the, the, the cities of the Mediterranean basin, uh, it's a kind of a confused situation, who belongs to which city? And in fact, he uses the word uh, amitere, amitere, to slip away. It's sort of like when you see someone slipping away and people slip away from their pagan and become citizens of the kingdom. And those who are in our churches worshiping slip away back to the gladiatorial games, so on and so forth. So he's, in, he's intentionally conscious of this as a, as a reality, as historic reality. Also, I, I think we want to add first that he grew up in an area where there were still a, a pagan aristocracy that was calling the shots in those, in those uh, North African cities. His father was a pagan, and, and he, so he grew up around uh, pagan society. And then pagans are still part of the, um, the cultural conversation, even at, by the time of the, the sack of Rome, because they are making their views known. And Augustine is responding to them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so <laughs> I apologize to all of um, the people who have great questions in the Q&A because we're now at the hour and a half mark, and um, we just don't we just don't have time to get to all of them. Um, and I also just want to thank uh, Father Michael and and Russ, uh, yeah, for for joining me this morning. And um, yeah, I think Michael's going to come back on now, wrap things up.
Great. Yes. I, I indeed, on behalf of our audience in the Lumen Christi Institute, um, I want to thank you, Russ, and uh, you, Father Michael, for your your fantastic remarks today. Um, as I mentioned to to the audience, um, both of these are teachers in our summer seminar for doctoral students on Augustine City of God. So um, today, you all got a window, a private window, into that experience, um, albeit one that's apart from the wonderful summer weather of the Bay Area right over at the University of Berkeley. Um, and Jen, thank you for really helping to moderate a fantastic, uh, rich conversation uh, to keep us anchored in the text, but also attentive to um, how these texts speak to modern times. Um, I also wanna thank America Media for co-sponsoring and really all of our co-sponsors um, that we've had over this past academic year and indeed uh, from the beginning of the pandemic um, because they've helped bring many of you I'm here today, even if they aren't co-sponsoring today's event. But finally, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part of this ongoing um, effort to make the Catholic intellectual tradition a living dialogue partner at the University of Chicago. Finally, I'd invite you to also um, support us and um, help get word out about these events uh, to your friends, parishes, follow us on social media, share our materials, um, but also become a financial supporter of our work today to allow us to continue to provide programs like these for free um, to viewers like you and viewers across the nation um, by do donating at www.lumenchristi.org donate. Otherwise, I wish you all a wonderful rest of your weekend and look forward to welcoming you back to our institute and our webinars soon.